This episode of Between the Covers is brought to you in part by Vancouver Manuscript Intensive, a literary mentoring program that pairs emerging and established authors with mentors in their genre. Directed by award-winning writers Ellie Kralji Gardner and Rachel Rose in Vancouver, BC, the program is open to writers around the world who seek sustained mentorship for their works in progress. Writers can join the six-month program that includes interaction with other mentors and students and participation in a public reading. Or they can pursue solo guidance for more directed and short-term support all year long. This year, a fellowship for a writer of exceptional promise who has faced significant barriers to fulfilling that promise is offered for the second time. The application deadline for the six-month program beginning January 2022 is November 9th. Please visit VancouverManuscriptIntensive.com for more information about pairing with a mentor to hone your project. Today's episode is also brought to you by Annabelle Abbs' Windswept, Walking the Paths of Trailblazing Women, a book Abbott Collar calls a gorgeous and revelatory blend of memoir, travelogue, and long-forgotten history. In captivating and elegant prose, Abs follows in the footsteps of women who boldly reclaimed wild landscapes for themselves, including Georgia O'Keeffe in the empty plains of Texas and New Mexico, Nan Shepherd in the mountains of Scotland, and Simone de Beauvoir, who walked as much as 25 miles a day through the mountains and forests of France. Windswept is out on September 7th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. Before we begin today's conversation with Adania Shibley, do consider taking a moment, if you're a longtime listener, or if this is your first time listening and you appreciate what you hear, consider becoming a listener supporter of Between the Covers. Every supporter receives emails with each episode, pointing to lectures and films and interviews and books referenced in each conversation, as well as suggestions of further places to explore. And every supporter plays a big role in helping shape who we invite in the future as guests. But there are also a lot of other potential benefits and rewards, some offered by past guests and others by Tin House, rare collectibles, the bonus audio archive, and the Tin House Early Readership Program, just to mention a few. Head over to patreon.com slash between the covers to check it all out. And now for today's conversation with Adania Shibley. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. 
artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Adania Shibley, is a writer of novels, short stories, plays, and essays. She completed her PhD at the University of East London in Media and Cultural Studies and a postdoctoral fellowship at the Europe in the Middle East, the Middle East in Europe Multidisciplinary Research Program through the Institute for Advanced Study in Berlin. She's been a lecturer at the University of Nottingham and since 2013 in the Department of Philosophy and Cultural Studies at Birdsight University in Ramallah, Palestine. Shibley has twice been awarded the Young Writers Award Palestine from the A.M. Katan Foundation, first in 2001 for her novel Touch, which prompted Egyptian novelist and journalist Adaf Suif to call Shibli the most talked-about writer in the West Bank, and also in 2003 for a novel We Are Equally Far From Love. Shibli's also the author of the play The Error, which has been staged in London, Amherst, and San Francisco, and the co-curator of the symposium A Journey of Ideas Across, in dialogue with Edward Said, which took place in 2013 in the House of World Cultures in Berlin. Her nonfiction works include the art book Dispositions, that explores the movement of an artist from familiar surroundings to other unfamiliar ones, and how this dispositioning affects the artist's dispositions, their artistic inclinations and processes, with the book focusing on 17 Palestinian artists. She's also a contributor to Keep Your Eye on the Wall, Palestinian Landscapes, a collaborative book between seven photographers and four essayists. Adania Shibli is here today to talk about her most recent novel, Minor Detail, translated into English by Elizabeth Jaquette, published in the United States by New Directions and in the UK by Fitzcarraldo Editions. Minor Detail was longlisted for the International Booker Prize and shortlisted for the 2020 National Book Award for Translated Literature. Mina Kandasami says of Minor Detail, Adania Shibli's exceptional novel belongs to the genre of the novel as resistance, as revolutionary text. As we join the nameless young woman in her quest to find the truth of a long-forgotten atrocity, we realize how dangerous it is to reclaim life and history in the face of ongoing systemic erasure. This is the political novel we have all been waiting for. Isabella Hamad adds, Written with an exquisite, tactile, and deceptive simplicity, Minor Detail tells the story of a woman's violation and murder in the aftermath of the Palestinian catastrophe and the founding of the Israeli state, and of another woman's curiosity about this quote-unquote minor detail in the modern day. Immediately after I finished reading this miraculous novel, I read it again. Both times it sliced through my heart. I believe it will be one for the ages. Pankaj Mishra adds, an extraordinary work of art, minor detail is continuously surprising and absorbing, a very rare blend of moral intelligence, political passion, and formal virtuosity. And finally, John Freeman says, Shibley has created a powerful set of dual heroines 
women racked with disquiet and violence, resisting the frames that have first been chosen for them, then denied to have ever existed. This is an astonishing major book. Welcome to Between the Covers, Adania Shibley. Thank you for the introduction, David. So as, as these various authors have alluded to, minor detail is, is, is two stories told in two parts. But the two parts, while they're in separate sections, they really sort of feel inseparable, like two vantage points looking at the same thing. And the first in 1949, following an Israeli officer in the Negev desert, whose unit encounters and kills some Bedouins, except for a girl that they capture, bring back to camp, and eventually rape. The second part is told from the vantage point of a modern-day Palestinian woman who discovers this lost, quote-unquote, minor detail from history, and because it's linked to another minor detail that it happened on the same day of this woman's birthday, but many years before, she feels compelled to go um, rescue these details from the erasure of, of history, from the erasure of major details. Um, but what I love about listening to you talk about the book as a writer myself is that having watched and listened to you in many talks and conversations, that no matter how much a person wants to ask you about the story and its implications or about the political aspect of the book and its implications, you always like to bring it back to the question of language and to bring the the interviewer's questions back into the realm of language. Um, for instance, you've said that this book started as a linguistic anxiety. And in your bomb interview, you say it began from an inquiry into how the complacency of language can inflict pain and also how the complacency of language can deflect pain. And I was hoping we could start with that, with um, what you mean by the complacency of language, but also how these questions of language and its ability to either cause or deflect pain uh, shape the choices that you make in part one versus part two? Yeah, I think uh, we experience the, uh, the pain and the joy related to language and, and on a daily basis. It's, uh, it's there uh, in the ability and the inability to to find the words or to articulate things. And of course, for me, the question is, is more concerned with the inarticulation and how language, how actually pain can shape language and uh, what kind of form would language uh, get with pain as a result of pain uh, in almost walking along uh, alongside pain and it's uh, I think it's a very important question when it comes to writing because this is the uh, the, the, the life of, of, of writing it is language or you know or an aspect of language because I feel language is so immense and so amazing that writing is just one element that, one aspect of experiencing language, and uh, and for me personally, it it is almost this kind of rec reconciliation between the inability to articulate, but still you might 
find a way to the ability to write. Mm. Or write, writing or language reveals itself within the silence of writing. And it's, um, I'm kind of really maybe more interested in silence and I've been kind of struggling maybe with this question of silence with writing. How can you write silence? How, how silence can, can be written? And in terms of silence, things that cannot be written, things, cannot be, that, things that cannot be articulated, things that cannot be said. Uh, and this is an essential question. Uh, when it comes from which perspective you get to writing. And I think, I mean, I, I don't, I never, when I see, say it again here, I never write about but from, and I think this is the experience of, of um, living in, in, in Palestine uh, and uh, Palestinian condition, which many people might imagine that it's unbearable, but actually it is extremely unbearable. <laughs> so how this unbearable being comes to shape your one's relations or my relation or your relation or everyone's relation to language. There's a lot of deletion, there's a lot of negation. And uh, I think that the first time I, I experienced this, it was not actually in a, in a grand context, in a very small context where that I, uh, I remember this incident because I was just speaking about it yesterday uh, uh, with a friend. Um, I had a fight with one of my sisters. I was a, I am the youngest in my family. And of course, I don't know. Sometimes they forget about me, but <laughs> sometimes they remember. <laughs> and, uh, and often we remember each other or they remember me like in, in moments of clash. So uh, I, uh, I know my, I was like, um, kind of always, because I was the youngest and there's a, a lot of a kind of four years, uh, difference of the ages and this is major when you're a small kid and I had a fight with uh, with one my, one of my sisters um, and it was amazing when I saw how she presented the story to my parents because she she kind of edited things out <laughs> and presented it in a, in a very articulate uh, way and she was older she was, um, I think, more even free, more social. And I was like younger. And uh, I'm the one who's like, always liking to, to play with uh, small insects. And suddenly I'm confronted with this narrative that is so perfect and being told about me. And it's full of lies. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. And she... <laughs> She presented herself as the victim and truly, I mean, she actually pushed me or even hit me. And, and I tried to defend myself, then she ran away. And she was presenting it that I was chasing her. And I was fascinated by this story that suddenly becomes something as how language can suddenly be not related to reality by a few things, a few differences. And I was so um, kind of um, surprised that I was not able to speak 
And then my parents thought, yes. So I was not able to speak because I was wrong. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's, it was fascinating, this kind of moment of understanding your failure with language, with saying things. Uh, and then when you take it to a level that is, uh, you know, more on the on the macro of politically, I witnessed this so often because I work with the press um, in kind of difficult years in Palestine. And uh, I would see, for instance, you know, we go to a refugee camp. It's almost half destroyed by the Israeli military. People have been killed. This is like in 2002. Uh, I remember this is a Balata refugee camp near Nablus. And then the, 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 the journalists want to know what happened, how things came to that, what, what this destruction means. And you find somebody that, you know, there's a lot of destruction and there's one person, she only focuses on her, the burning of one of her papers. Mm. So if it's sometimes like, there is a grand narrative. There is these wishes for a certain language, and there's we 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 are failing these kind of almost expectations. I was working then also as a, as a translator, and I I just couldn't translate that to the reporters. You know that they want to ask about the consequences of the destruction of her house. This lady. Uh, and uh, her, her husband got injured and, you know, it's, it's like all of her life was destroyed. And she just wanted to speak about a paper that got burned. She didn't, she didn't care about, not she didn't care, but she was obsessed with this paper. And you find there's no place for this small paper that got burned within this. And for me, I always wonder about this kind of... Uh, uh, concerns with language that they don't find a place in in the in a, in a kind of the language we expect to hear. Well, if we take this notion that you're not writing about, so by extension, you're not writing about Palestine, um, and maybe can I wondered if it's connected to the the anecdote you're telling about your sister, because I'm thinking about how you've said in interviews before that you've never cared about narrative form. And that's particularly obvious in your first two books, I think that are, have less plot, less motion and, and movement than minor detail. But more, more recently you've, you've said that you've actually grown disgusted by narrative form, that you have a physical reaction to linear structure, which made me think of, made me think of the way you were describing your sister's well-spoken argument against you. Uh, in, in your World Literature Today conversation, you said, the classical linear narrative structure is a dictatorship that causes blindness. In this enclosed world, everything is known and everything is almost complete within itself. There are no outside connections. And I wondered about this because the first part of the book feels like the the part of the book that follows the Israeli officer feels almost like it flirts with sort of a um, elemental horrific allegory. Not entirely, but, um, but it feels like it's, com it's trying to be complete within itself. 
Um, and I, and I wondered if you resisting that is somehow connected to not writing about something, but from within something. I'm not sure if I'm getting to where I'm trying to. I understand what you say, because it's also something that exactly goes to the, uh, you know, let's say the starting point of the of minor detail is uh, can those who don't speak well suddenly be able to speak or to uh, imitate the, the type of language of those who create these narratives? You know, like if you're stuttering, can you imitate somebody who doesn't stutter? If you cannot speak eloquently, if you cannot speak perfectly, can you suddenly imitate those who speak perfectly? That's, that's our main question. And if you do that, what happens then? What happens to your relation to language? Uh, and what happens, yeah, between you and, and that, that experience? Um, you know, speaking about this lady, I would like to go back to her in, in a Relata refugee camp. Because basically it's, she doesn't fit within the narrative of the, of the grand, what you expect, the narrative of the victimhood, of the disaster of the thing that will make you oh so terribly sad and you will feel so anger at political oppression, etc. And she deviates from that. She deviates to something which is personal, which matters to her and which doesn't matter to anybody in the world. And I think this is, this is the tension between those who decide what matters and how what kind of narratives and which type of, types or forms of narrative should be and which should remain marginal and never get into a place that creates maybe even a, a, a shaking within our positions, at least the linguistic ones. How are we able to listen to those who cannot articulate themselves perfectly, who don't go into these press offices and narrate a whole narrative that there's no even one moment to, to question its credibility. Whereas you will go to another one who's hysterical, stammering, repeating things, saying things which are unimportant. What kind, for me, it's not like I'm with this against that, but I'm wondering what type of way brought this person to this position? Because, you know, language is there, is there for everybody, but it's, it is our way towards language or it's language's way towards us, how language reveals itself. I mean, that's when I think is language complacent. Mm. Uh, yeah, and the, the first, whereas the first section is, is linear or more linear, the second section with our modern Palestinian woman who's nameless also it's much less it's much more meandering and it's much more um 
I guess I don't know if confused is the right word, but she be, she takes on the the task of being an amateur detective of sorts to look for information like this these minor details you're discussing in the refugee camp. Um, but there isn't just the obstacle of um, trying to retrieve further information when all the information's either being held by the Israelis or being told and narrated by the Israelis. Um, but there's also just on a more mundane level, the difficulty of simply being able to move physically from one part of the country to another. I think that's part of the way in which the narrative um, stutters in the second section is, is the different permits that a, one Palestinian might be able to go to area B and another might be able to go to area B and C um, that she needs to borrow someone else's identity card to have a greater range of travel and then rent a car with Israeli plates. And even with all of that increased access, she's completely bewildered even with all of her maps or maybe because of all of her maps, because she has this um, map from 1948 that's full of all of these Palestinian the names of Palestinian Palestinian villages and a modern map where all the meandering roads have been straightened and many of the villages simply are not there or have been renamed. And you said that in your own life, that linguistic erasure on maps is where you first experienced the betrayal of language. And I was, I was wondering if we could spend a moment with that um, and also with your protagonist who's navigating two maps at once i'm not alone in that it's a it's how you live as a palestinian in in relation to arabic language under the israeli rule um the israeli government actually passed a law 2017 downgrading arabic language to become a language not equal with hebrew but has a special status I mean, Arabic was never treated with appreciation. And I guess this is not only, you know, symptomatic of the Israeli government policies, but you have this attitude uh, quite widespread and uh, with prejudices, stereotypes, etc. So imagine this kind of, you grow up in a language that it has all this load on it, a language that it's, there where you read poetry and the most fascinating poetry from the sixth century. So yeah, it's like almost um, something that's so fascinating there. And then you don't understand how it's being reduced and being belittled and being hated so immensely. And I, I experienced this with even my surname, Shibli, uh, which has being changed in the 80s, not out of our choice, but the Israeli government forced this change. We were called square. And I remember this, you know, we didn't stop at that, but I didn't understand what was the big deal, you know, as a kid. For me, because I related to my name, Adania, it already was strange enough that I, it was a big burden. It's not a common name in Arabic. But I remember there was this kind of unease. You felt it with your parents. Uh, they didn't tell us anything. Our parents always tried to uh, 
to exclude us from any serious conversations, basically. And uh, so there was this kind of moment on your name that suddenly in the 80s changes. And I, in fact, I only have it now. The only document carries this old name is my driving license the, uh, that the, uh, that's issued by the Israeli um, driving department or traffic department. Uh, and so you, you, you know that you don't have a choice in these issues. It's not you are being able to name yourself. Imagine this act of naming that is so basic. You are not responsible for that. Um, you know, when God calls Adam to name things, this is an act of power. Adam is given the act of naming things. But imagine on the other hand, and God is giving him this possibility. Imagine then, please imagine a scenario where God comes and tells Adam, you cannot name things. And uh, so... You know, the situation of fragility in terms of what Adam would say, <laughs> what would Adam be able, which words Adam would be able to say, how always Adam would be careful saying from a position that Adam is naming things. And of course, you come to the map. You look at the maps. We're kids. We look at the maps. And actually, almost nobody tells you which country you are from. <laughs> Because, you know, our parents, my parents experienced the Nakba. And it's like, I was born in 74. And it's, it's less than 25 years. It's uh, 26 years. And it's, it, it's almost like you don't focus on this big thing. And you look at the map, kind of the map doesn't say things. And so you hear sort of Palestine, but there's Israel, but what's this Israel? And you know something about Palestine that it should not be said. All you know about Palestine is a word you should not say. Uh, so there's a lot of this, it's almost, you know, within this kind of uh, parents who are trying to protect you out of fear. They're not out of fear probably also for themselves because they experience the expulsion, etc. And then you grow into this language that is around you. But on the other hand, you have this poetry from the sixth century, which is so fascinating. And yeah, you're moving between that, along that. This erasure, but there's this presence. There's the ridicule of language. There's the, the, the shy language where people don't speak in a loud voice Arabic. You know, they are almost whispering. Uh, it's the silencing. Because, you know, in, in the context of, of, of other racist uh, contexts, you know, let's say in, in the U.S., you would be identified based on the color of your skin, for instance, or the, the, the shape of your, I don't know, some physical uh, features. But in, in, in Palestine, Israel, <laughs> sorry, we are all similar. You know, even the uh, Jewish Europeans, they are now like being so mixed that it's maybe sometimes it's an issue of a class, like how you dress, but people are similar. So the only way that you can identify to activate this racist uh, structure is when you speak. So language becomes also you feel the minute you say something, you need to think a lot. The consequences of you just saying a word in Arabic because suddenly you will be treated in a different way immediately. And this is where the complacency of language, you think, okay, this is the language where I, 
I feel so close, so intimate, but this is the language. The minute I speak it, it will put me in a place that I did not wish to be in. Well, if we were to take that um, question of whether to speak and how to speak, so whis- potentially whispering the language, if, if speaking it at all, and connect it to your protagonist in part two, she doesn't have much of a political analysis of the situation she's living in. In some ways, she's not only grown desensitized to the trauma and its unpredictability, where she focuses almost matter-of-factly on the dust in her house that has been created by the nearby house that has been bombed, rather than on the bombing or, or on the fate of the people who are bombed. But she also seems to critique herself more than she critiques the circumstances. Um, she says, there are some people who navigate borders masterfully who never trespass, but these people are few and I'm not one of them. As soon as I see a border, I either race toward it and leap over or cross it stealthily with a step. Neither of these two behaviors is conscious or rooted in a premeditated desire to resist borders. It's more like sheer stupidity, a matter simply put of clumsiness. And she, and she also says this failure on her part around borders, even quote-unquote very rational borders, makes her overreact sometimes and underreact at other times. And it, it feels to me like she's almost internalized the borders in psychologically inside of her, that she'll move less she'll aspire for fewer things or maybe what you're saying also speak less, speak more quietly. Um, that in, in a way the checkpoints have been internalized and I didn't know if that sounded right to you, but I, I wanted to hear about the potential way that may or may not have entered her psychology where she's not even arriving at a checkpoint because she's not bothering to even leave her house for instance. Yeah, I, I, I would say this kind of, uh, if you're subjected to limitations of movement that you cannot move so often, you basically learn at the end not to move. I, uh, it's a known method in, in occupation colonization called learned helplessness. Actually, uh, I have a friend who was studying at uh, Haifa University, psychology. And, um, you know, and they were making all these experiments. And uh, she told me an experiment that was done with, uh, with mice. They put the mice in a enclosed space. And in the middle, they have the food for them. And uh, this sort of plate or whatever is connected to electric shocks. And um, sometimes when the mice go to eat, there could be an electric shock, but sometimes there isn't. It's unexpected. Eventually the mice stop going, approaching this plate for fear of the electric shock and they die in their place. She told me this like in in early 2000 and, and the, the name of the experiment is learned helplessness, how you learn to be helpless. And of course, these ex- experiments, they are not, they are employed within military operations and thinking these methods. And I could see actually how a lot of Palestinians don't, don't even 
consider um, opposing that. You cannot. I mean, it's it's basically you have all these machines, you have all these huge stones, you have all these huge structures. If you move a little bit differently, it's it's your end because you will become a suspect of a sort, and uh, and also it, it your world becomes almost smaller and smaller in terms of the space you can move. And this happened uh, over a period of time. Uh, and you can see a lot of people actually don't move. So this character is, is, uh, is just one of, of the many who, uh, who don't move. And if they move, Actually, people now, they move from one city to another over the weekend, you know? People used to commute between cities, but the, the uh, distances between places have tripled, at least, mm. and let alone the traffic jams. Uh, so, yes, it's tiring. It's, uh, it's almost like you, your imagination, uh, your stamina, <laughs> they become completely uh, reduced. Uh, and uh, you don't go. I mean, now when I'm in Palestine, I make a point to move. I make a point as a person. But I know, and everybody knows I'm making a point. So when you decide to move, it is like you're making a huge effort. It's not the norm. And uh, you know, I, I, I went, for instance, to Hebron, from Ramallah to Hebron. It used to be 40 minutes. It took three hours and a half. Wow. Yeah, and it's you are tired. You are tired with these long trips, and because the roads are not so good, and up and down, and you feel exhausted. It's like you need two days to recover from such a trip, which used to be forty minutes. I wanted to ask you about something that J.M. Kutsi said in relationship to the book, and relationship to what we're talking about now. Because I'm I'm not surprised that he loves this book. I I feel like particularly part one. I thought of uh, waiting for the barbarians in terms of it's like the, this sort of spare intensity of both of your books in that regard. But he, in his blurb for minor detail, he, he calls the Israeli officer a psychopath and the Palestinian in part two high on the autism scale. And for me, I found this medical and, and psychiatric interpretation really problematic. Um, for one, to make the officer seem exceptionally bad when I feel like the acts he's doing while obviously horrific are horrifically commonplace in war and occupation. And I think even the, the narrator in part two acknowledges that this is, a, I mean, in a way this is a minor detail and also one that is, um, there were so many other soldiers involved in this one act so to me, it would be more accurate to say that the army is psychopathic or armies are psychopathic and that the occupation is. So I, I don't know, but it, it troubled me to make him seem like he, he, his motivations were some psychiatric disorder that was individual. But I also found that the Palestinian woman in part two, her obsessive attention to dust in her home and her sort of anxious, maladaptive responses to borders and checkpoints, they felt like they were more a reflection of the impossible and what you called unbearable way of being Palestinian, uh, the impossible conditions upon her rather than her having some sort of 
organic brain disorder of some sort. And I didn't know if you had any thoughts about either of these. About I mean, I mean, obviously, there's an interplay always between our conditions and our psychologies. I don't deny that, but to say that it's coming from some sort of individual psychological flaw on both accounts seemed strange to me. Uh, well, I think you're totally right in your observation. On the other hand, it's his observation. And you know, I love his writing. Even if he says it's a book for uh, recipes, a great book for, <laughs> I will accept that. Yeah, no. I, I don't mind. <laughs> Whatever he would say, like, yeah. okay, thank you for reading it. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I would feel too, actually. I think his writing is amazing. But I wondered about the, I guess I wondered about the, the. It's very interesting, yeah, what you're observing because, you know, this is a running joke within the Palestinian uh, society. Most often, most often, when there are cases of Israeli individuals or military committing crimes that are defined by the Israeli legal system as crimes, it is known that there will be a lenient uh, ruling based on psychological uh, grounds. Mm. Almost everybody, almost, is being identified as mentally unstable. And this is the way to go out of it legally. And I wonder, you know, exactly as you say, if you're in these conditions, aren't you mad anyway? And what kind of responsibility? And it's really interesting, this also definition between those who are unstable and mad and those who are stable. It's almost like those who can speak perfectly or write perfectly and those who cannot. Certainly, there is a problematic this kind of dichotomy. And who decides uh, um, even the criteria of sanity? I'm certainly thinking everybody who holds a gun and think that they've got the power to terminate the life of the other, regardless if the other is an attacker or being attacked, is doing something that I don't see as normal. But this is my position. So certainly not only the armies, but manufacturers of, of arms of, uh, and it's interesting that the most important literary prize <laughs> is being awarded by the person who kind of invented the, the you know, the source of, 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 uh, of, uh, of arms uh, that we're now witnessing the acceleration of, of, uh, of the arm race, etc. Mm. So I don't know, maybe it's a moment that literature can return to that and try to reflect on that. I don't know. I, I don't want to give literature a mission, actually. Yeah. You know. Well, when I think of our Palestinian protagonist in part two, I also think of the, the title of, of Edward Said's memoir, Out of Place, but also the original title he had for it before it was changed, uh, Not Quite Right. And I, I was thinking about a talk that you were part of where the interviewer asked the panel about the literature of exile. And, and and while you do split your time between Berlin and Palestine, you, you pushed back against this notion of exile, saying that 
there's nowhere you feel more exiled than when you're at home in Palestine. And this is the lens through which that comment of yours is the lens through which I find myself understanding our, our protagonist and her psychology, that it's a product of being exiled in place. Um, is, is she one possible example of what you mean when you say this, that you feel exiled? I mean, certainly, like all these forces that keep alienating you from these intimate relations to a place, to even a plant, um, a, a a bending in a road, etc., and this is where um, I don't know. Can we always say it's about power relations? But uh, I mean, of course, you see those who are affecting places and the planet are those who have the tools. It's not the the planet is not being destroyed by uh, third world countries receiving the rubbish from uh, first world countries. There is an active kind of destruction that looks at itself as, as a civilization. It's the, the last 70 years, an acceleration of that, of colonialism. Uh, uh, and, you know, you look also at, at, at a place uh, like the United States and uh, the, what happened to the First Nations. I, I visited... Even I'm ashamed to say that preservations, I really am ashamed to say the term. Uh, and you see there is this alienation that you're being brought to. It's not your choice. We can choose to be alienated, but it's all these forces that bring you. And even in terms of language, what kind of language and the silence that uh, um, kind of, uh, covers these experiences. Uh, I mean, do we as First Nations, how they feel about their experience of exile, what they might still be in what is called preservations? Mm -hmm. uh, these are questions for me, they are not only related to the Palestinian experience, but I try to basically understand from the Palestinian experience a way towards understanding other experiences and not to be kind of self-obsessed with what one experiences in a specific place. That for me, it's really, it's an act of generosity, how we learn and how we can uh, see if in our positions, not as definitions to decide this or that, but to discover and, not, and actually, to always give the possibility that something might change. And I think kind of making these judgments, even in terms of a place, like, you know, um, being in, um, in places outside Palestine, it's, it's almost doesn't uh, land on you as much as the, the, the force of violence that is being activated on you <clears throat> while you are in Palestine. And as, if we go back to language, again, I say language is the first level that you experience that mm. since childhood, you know? Yeah. Well, you, you speak a lot of languages um, to varying degrees. I love language. <laughs> so tell me if I'm missing one, but English, Hebrew, German, French, and Korean, in addition to Arabic. 
Yeah. Is the right? Korean, I'm almost forgetting. The German, I'm refusing to learn better. You know, I'm, I'm with Mark Twain when he wrote the Terrible German Language. It's a fascinating book. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, but probably, you know, when you think about writers like Robert Walser and Brecht and, and films by Fassbinder, you think, mm, okay, I might have liked to know, to read these texts in their original language. But yes, I mean, who doesn't want to read a book in, a, in the original language? And, yeah. and, and I think knowing other languages opens up the language itself. It's, it becomes like almost a, um, a different entry to the language you feel most in love with. I mean, I have to confess, I love Arabic language. And, yeah. and I, I, uh, it's like so terrible to say that I love all other languages because it makes me look at Arabic differently. But it can be, you know, it well, can be. No, I was thinking about how, you know, you live in multiple places. And I was thinking about how Saeed, being both American and Palestinian, speaking English and Arabic as both of his mother tongues, and yet not really feeling at home entirely in Arabic. Um, It seems to me from everything I've heard you speak quite wonderfully that Arabic is a home for you, maybe a porous home. Uh, where of with influences from other languages, but it it feels like a a a, a place um, of I don't know if it's joy and delight, but um, I wanted yeah. I wanted to I wanted to um, not a home because I feel homes are kind of structures and yeah. and, and, I, and I'm more with the, with the things that can shift and move and and they're not structured. I think it's it's a being, you know. Arabic, I feel, is the most open being, and I and I don't know if everybody feels this when they are in love with language, but I think it's the most uh, also loving back and the most uh, in the way that I want to be loved is like how language is loving me. I feel. I mean, I know it might be crazy to say that language loves you, but. Maybe it does. Maybe it does in inconceivable and inarticulate ways. But I feel this love of the language yeah. towards me because you know, for me, I'm, a, I'm a, I really am a clumsy um, uh, and keep forgetting and and kind of replacing words with other words. And language is patient and says, "Okay, like do your mistakes. <laughs> I'm here. No uh-huh. rush." It's like wow. If I could be language, if I could behave like language behave, I would be the nicest human being. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Um, I'm going to read something that the Palestinian American poet and translator uh, Fadi Judah said about Arabic. Um, I live Palestine in English, but in my heart, Palestine is Arabic, and Palestine in Arabic does not need to explain itself. Despite setbacks, disasters, revolving conspiracies against it, Palestine in Arabic is self-possessed. It is exterior to English, yet born internationalist and shall remain so, neither thinking it is the center of the world nor surrendering to the imperial center as the primary source of its future liberation. Palestine in Arabic is where the overwhelming sacrifice is made. Palestine in Arabic dreams, lives in, and with more than 1,500 years of literary, intellectual, and ecumenical traditions, belongs to 10,000 years before that. History does not end for Palestine in Arabic. So in, in light of his comments and, and your comments about it as a being, 
I have a question for you from Fadi that he's going to pose to you um, that he recorded from Beirut. There is an aesthetic to your sentence marked by a clarity that condenses time and place into a point from which subsequent unfurling flows and lines unfold. Do you think this comes across in English the way it exists in Arabic? يعني إلى أي حد يتحول نصك الإبداعي العربي إلى نص إعلامي بالإنجليزي بدون أن يكون لهذا ضرورة Wow, that was a nice surprise. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, I didn't hear the voice of uh, Fadi since like 17 years. Mm. Yeah, we write to each other, but you see, this is like the voice. And then I saw we write, actually, he shared with me some of his poems day before yesterday. Oh, wow. Yes, uh, in Arabic. <laughs> um, yes, so the question. I, to be frank, I never read fully what I wrote. I work on it. I write, I write it, I edit it. I make it crazy, I squeeze it. I, I don't know, I don't know. But I don't read it calmly to be able to have an understanding that can offer an answer. And this includes the translation. But I, I know, you know, deep in my heart, <laughs> I don't have a connection to the text once it's over. But certainly I will not have this connection when it moves to another language. And it's not about me. It's again, if we're talking about an act, act of generosity, it should happen. Because a lot of the literature that I grew up on as a kid that I'm still enjoying is the one that was translated into Arabic. And this is what I say, like how translations can open up a language. But sometimes I, I have a struggle and I'm probably like 99% of translators from Arabic to English, they hate me. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes, <laughs> because, because I'm not an, you know, there's like, oh, it's <laughs> difficult to start, yeah. And it's like almost as, as precise as the, the elections in Syria, you know, they're really mostly. <laughs> they, and because I, I don't want a translation, you know, because there's a lot of this, the translation that is being almost going comfortably into English or another language. It's not about that because it's already not comfortable in Arabic. So why to create this comfort in English? And I think this is the danger of it becoming informative. And this is, I, I resist. Mm. Because for me, this means betrayal of the language as it reveals itself to, to my word. There are the bells ringing here. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, what are they the bells of? This is uh, the evening prayer 
I don't know. This is like the city of bells and towers. I mean, Bergamo. Yeah. And uh, actually, I was here in a concert two days ago, and they stopped the concert because these bells are quite dominant, you know. Yes. And it's interesting how they bring everything, like, to be still. And, yeah, maybe we also should follow the Bergamescan tradition and stuff for a minute. So yes, the, to the question of the informative, it's very problematic. And I don't blame the translators uh, for that because there is a, an urge sometimes to, to conceive things about. And for me, it's always how we can go back to see it not about a narrative or a story. Because again, you know, I said this before, it's a coincidence this is a story about. It's not important, it's not that about. It is, it is really how it is written, how the words come together and, and shift their meaning uh, and, and the ability to shift their meaning. This is like, this is really magic. This is fascinating, uh, the ability of language. And the struggle becomes how to have this sensibility to uh, language, to the Arabic, the way I'm trying to work. And of course it demands a lot of, of, of time and work and attention. And this also with the, with the badly paid translators, it's hard to ask them to do that. Yeah. So it remains a question how much collaboration they welcome on board. Sometimes uh, there is the attitude, which is, I don't find mistaken, but I find it doesn't, work with the text I'm writing is like, I am bringing it to another language. I'm the writer of the text. I'm, I don't even consider myself a writer of the text. I'm maximum the waiter carrying these words from, you know, uh, it's about the writing. It's what the text wants to be. And this is very important. And to hear that it requires a lot and it requires to be risky in terms of not trying to write correctly. And I find this sometimes difficult to convince translators to do that. How to write almost correctly, but leave a crack of like, mm, this sounds a bit weird. And with that, this kind of almost a little mistake, it's very important. It's almost like the carpet uh, makers, you know, there's always this yeah. cliche of the carpet makers, you yes, know, with the yeah. flaw on the carpet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I love when you, you just mentioned the, um, about your potentially your minor role in writing the book, essentially, like the way that maybe as a writer, you're even a minor detail that you sit and the word you're, you're listening to the words or maybe listening to the silence, um, which I just think is so mysterious and interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, they, they really, they really have their agency, these words. They really, it's like, I, I think I'm, I'm certainly not, they, they probably need somebody to write them and then they, <laughs> so they're they waiting, they're waiting for I'm, you. <laughs> <laughs> they're kind of, 
employee. Yeah. You know? No, I mean, I imagine because this book took, I think, 11 or 12 years to, yeah. and is about 120 pages in English. Um, and it feels very distilled. Um, and I don't, I mean, I, I imagine when you descri- you've described in multiple places the, the words emerging from, uh, from silence uh, and you being present to silence. But it, I'm also guessing that there was a lot of unwriting too or the removal of what had been written. Yeah, this happens a lot. Yeah. Especially when I try to intervene in the process too much. <laughs> <laughs> well... Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I try cheating, I call it cheating because, you know, it's exactly to sit and to wait for that word because you feel it, you know it. Not that you feel it's like it's hovering somewhere and, and, but you cannot catch it. It's, it's, uh, uh, and then you try different route. And this is a problem. Like when you are, you think you have a position of power over language and this is, with a second draft, I look for these and I remove that. Mm-hmm. So exactly. Uh, but also things that they really insist on coming together and leaving things out. It also happens with which words bring which words. Mm-hmm. There is a whole, uh, and it's quite, quite fascinating process. It's really quite, uh, uh, as I, 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 I think it's so so coincidental so so almost like you don't have a role that you think sometimes but but is it all so much built on on this like slight you know, it's almost this kind of you build a house from uh, uh, matches match match sticks it's like maybe one is like but oh but it might fall but it's like and how it came and you're even not building that just comes together. So, so things happen, they come together in a way that is, is quite fascinating. And, and I say it's a coincidence because I feel I don't have the control over the process. And this is fascinating because maybe in reality, I, I cannot not interfere. I'm like, you know, I maybe a lot of trouble that I do interfere and think sometimes I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't take it seriously. But only with writing, I try, okay, not to interfere. Did it happen? And this process of going back to the text, it's its almost like making sure, did it really happen? Or did I do the job correctly? It's, mm. it's a return to see what you did with the words, not that what you wrote as a writer. I mean, I really don't see myself as that. Actually, when you write, you disappear. There's a fascinating thing, like it, it, you feel you completely vanish. It's almost you, you are not there. There's a... Um, a strange experience of, of being uh, that it's specific to the writing that you would never, I do, I never would experience it elsewhere. Well, perhaps similar to when you half jokingly said that you're the most hated author for translators, um, you have a fraught relationship to what you've already written. I know you've talked elsewhere about not wanting, not liking to revisit your past books or having to stop yourself from saying negative things about your earlier novels. Um, but you don't like to read in from understandably from your book in translation, but generally speaking, don't like to read your work. Um, but you've graciously picked out a small amount to read for us in Arabic, just for the sound of the of, and the music of the syntax. Um, 
Yes. And I hate it, but I'll do it. <laughs> you don't have to. We can uh, skip we it if you want. We talk about generosity, so we should be generous. Okay. <laughs> ملأ ضوء شمس العصر فتحة الخيمة ممتدا عبرها إلى داخلها لينبسط فوق الرمل مبينا النتوءات الصغيرة العديدة التي شكلتها أقدام الجنود على سطحهم افتتح هو الحديث شارحا بأن مهمتهم الرئيسية أثناء تواجدهم هنا ستكون بالإضافة إلى ترسيم الحدود مع مصر ومنع المتسللين من اختراقها هي تمشيط القسم الجنوبي الغربي من النقب وتنظيفه من بقايا العرب فهنالك معلومات من مصادر عسكرية جوية تفيد بوجود تحركات لهم ولبعض المتسللين كما أنهم سيقومون بجولات استطلاعية يومية لاستكشاف المنطقة والتعرف عليها عن كثب وقد تستغرقهم كل هذه العملية بعض الوقت إلا أنهم سيبقون مرابطين هنا إلى أن يستتب الأمن بالكابل في هذا الجزء من النقب كذلك سيجرون تمرينات يومية ومناورات عسكرية مع بقية الجنود للتدرب على سبل القتال في ظروف صحراوية والتأقلم معها. استمع الحضور إليه متتبعين حركة يديه فوق الخريطة المنبسطة أمامهم، والتي بدا موقع المعسكر فوقها نقطة سوداء صغيرة بالكاد يمكن تمييزها داخل مثلث رمادي كبير. وإذ لم يعلق أي منهم على ما قيل، سد السكون الخيمة لحظات. حول هو خلالها نظره من الخريطة إلى وجوههم الواجمة التي تصبب منها العرق وراحت تتلألأ بفعل الضوء القادم عبر فتحة الخيمة. I survived it. <laughs> Good. We've been listening to Adania Shivli read from Minor Detail, and now we're going to hear the English version, as translated by Elizabeth Jacquet and read by the poet George Abraham. Afternoon sunlight filled the entrance to the tent, streamed through it and spread across the sand, revealing little indentations on its surface made by the soldier's feet. He began the briefing by explaining that their primary mission during their presence here, in addition to demarking the southern border with Egypt and preventing anyone from penetrating it, was to comb the southwest part of the Negev and cleanse it of any remaining Arabs. Air Force sources had reported movement here, of Arabs and infiltrators in the area. They would also take daily reconnaissance patrols to explore and familiarize themselves with the region. The operation could take some time, but they were to remain stationed here until security in this part of the Negev had been established. They would also run daily drills and military maneuvers with the soldiers, train them in desert combat, and acclimatize them to the conditions. The soldiers and attendants listened as they followed the movement of his hands over the map laid out in front of them, where the camp's position appeared in the form of small, barely discernible black dots inside a large gray triangle. None of them commented on what was said, and silence filled the tent for several seconds. The officer turned his gaze from the map to their sullen faces, dripping with sweat, glistening in the light that came through the entrance to the tent. We've been listening to Adania Shibli read from Minor Detail in Arabic, and George Abraham read from Minor Detail in English.
there, when when a moderator of a translation panel asked if it were possible for the silences in Arabic to survive translation, the survive the silences that you're contending with in the Arabic that you are making, uh, particularly when the audience in the original language shares a cultural history and an acquaintance with s- specific gestures and shadows within a language. Um, and your response was really, I, I loved your response, which was sharing this anecdote about Jean Genet and Edward Said and uh, uh, the translation of Genet's talk when he came to New York City. And I, I wondered if you might be willing to share that with listeners today. Yeah, actually, this is, um, that was a, a story that um, taught me a lot. It's basically, yeah, I think it's the period of the Black Panthers, the the, the uh, student upheavals in the U.S. and and uh, revolts and marches, and Jean Genet is invited there, and they ask him to uh, say something, and uh, he says something brief about I can't remember now exactly, but about the the injustices of of society and how to oppose that. And then the translator, it's like, yeah, you know, it takes maybe 10 seconds. There's a translator, a student who supposedly speaks French and he's accompanying Jean Genet uh, in, the, uh, in this event. And he goes on translating <laughs> this sentence and going, this capitalist fucking existence in this country and he goes on and on and on and on and you know like for three minutes and and Edward Seed is there because he comes to the stop to hear Jean Genet and then uh, he approaches uh, Jean Genet and say okay but you know this translation there was how didn't you think that the, the student kind of uh, mistranslated what you said and he basically said no maybe not in the words but the spirit is the same one. And I think this is like, this is very important in what the text intends to be. And this is what I was saying earlier, like what the text wants to be. Jean Genet with this short sentence, probably he meant all of these things, but he didn't say them. They were in the spirit, the way that uh, the student uh, translated, they remained within the spirit of his, the spirit that he said these words. And I think that this is, uh, kind of a, a most difficult task of kind of translating not the words but the spirit of the words what the words want to be and uh i mean i wish i could be as generous as jean journey uh but i share totally with him the importance of the spirit yeah that's a great story i, I want to return to silence again um I mean, we have the silences of the state. For instance, Israel has criminalized the commemoration of the Nakba. Um, and as you mentioned, Arabic's been demoted from a national language to a, a language of special status. And 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 you've talked about um, how fraught it is to speak Arabic in, in public spaces. Um, but you talk about silence as not just something being done to Palestinians, but something Palestinians use f- for survival 
and also for resistance. In, in your lecture, I'm not to speak my language. You say the Palestinian, Palestinian experience is the opposite of A Thousand and One Nights, that Scheherazade needs to keep telling stories to stay alive, and silence is literally equated with death, but that for Palestinian silence is a means of survival. And you, you then shared an anecdote about, um, or an, I don't know if it's the same place, but you shared an anecdote about being in line at the post office and how people can be indistinguishable from each other. As you mentioned earlier, in certain contexts, um, you don't know who's a Israeli or a Palestinian until they, which language they choose to speak. But I, but I, I wondered about all of this in relationship to your desire to retain the not said and silence within the Arabic and, and minor detail. If it wasn't just about, um, the safety that Palestinians seek, but potentially the resistance that happens through silence. Um, cause in your, in your writings about Saeed, you talk about his misbehaving as a child, um, nail biting, loitering, lagging behind. And, and, and you say the very techniques associated with weakness, such as failing and misbehaving could indeed help foster what Saeed describes on a different occasion as a spirit not of conformity, but of resistance, of individual agency rather than collective determinism, precisely in situations of excessive authority and domination where one finds oneself lacking the physical power to fight back. How can we incorporate a recurring sense of weakness into an active system of resistance? In what way does weakness inform and delineate the limits of power? What type of agency would all this eventually contribute to shaping? This is sort of my long way of, of um, I'm wondering if, if you're not only trying to um, bring silence into the language, but also weakness. If, if part of what you were talking earlier about stammering and stuttering versus a linear, smooth narrative is, is that, is resistance through quote-unquote failing yeah i mean silence and and connecting it with resistance i mean even the resistance how we can perceive the idea of resistance because if we're always busy with resisting something that is being enforced on us are aren't we consummated by something that is being forced on us at the end by also just being so for me it's important to to say that resistance is not in terms of opposing something, but in shifting and, and taking a situation into a, something transformative. Not that weakness should transform into a situation of power, but weakness can transform into a situation of sensitivity and care. And also creativity. Mm. What kind of narrative structure, if at all, would be created in these conditions? I mean, or we go into the cliche of the idea of the, the classical narrative structure, wh wh when it appeared, how it appeared, this kind of idea of the grand narrative. Uh, and you have this a lot in literature, which is, I mean, I don't hate this literature. I, I basically, I love everything. I love, right, everything is written, almost, let's say, including shopping lists, you know, I don't differentiate. But it's also important to see the different ways that 
our interest to language, what they can create. And uh, for instance, talking about the lagging behind and failing, I just could remember uh, while you're speaking, for instance, Agota Christophe and her inability, for instance, to, uh, to speak uh, French language when she arrived in Switzerland and working in a factory and that text that she wrote that called the analphabet or the illiterate. And this, this is a way of not resistance, but truly it's transforming how weakness is supposed to defeat you and how it's being enforced in you, let's say even linguistically, and how you turn this weakness into something that yes, you're experiencing it, but not as those who uh, impose it in you want it to be, you do something else with it. Uh, and this, this is the possibility I think that creates many different things that we, we depart from the the monocultures, the, the kind of uh, structures of the narrative of literature. We go, for example, to, to the works of Robert Walser, the microscripts that he wrote while he was in the mental hospital. It is a place, actually, there is one of his friends that always was coming, is a critic, literary critic, that was always coming to visit him and asked him once, are you writing? And he said, no, I'm here to be mad, not to write, mm. or not to be a writer. And it's very interesting what this meant. Because actually, when he died, they discovered all these uh, micro uh, uh, scripts behind, which he left, which he was writing in small uh, scraps of paper. So maybe this is what he meant. He's not going to write what you expect me to write, all these kind of novels that I was writing in the world of the scene. But I am mad. And this is the, the madness that created different forms of text. And, uh, and there's the importance of failing. That almost it allows us a sense of freedom. Not I'm, I'm not romanticizing failure, but I'm also not saying that it is defined in a certain way by those who try to use it as a weapon against somebody else. Yeah. And I think this is important. I'm, I'm, I'm maybe I'm optimist by nature, but I think uh, it's a, these shifts, they create so many amazing uh, moments in, in the arts and in life, not only life, but if we're talking about literature, it creates the most uh, the most fascinating works that gives us the space, the freedom to think and to imagine. There is different possibilities. Well, I wanna I wanna bring some of these questions back to the notion of minor details because I'm thinking again of your like um, when you mentioned Adam and the power of naming. Um, and naming and namelessness in this book. And I almost wonder if, if our nameless protagonist, if, if not being named is a way, maybe not to reclaim power, but a form of resistance also. But I'm thinking of also like, there's a lot of naming and renaming happening in Israel. So, you know, uh, Ludwig Pfeffer becomes Yehuda Amachai um, and many other um, settlers change their names to Hebrew names. And, um, 
place names are disappearing, place names are being renamed. But there are these minor details that don't go away between part one and part two uh, that connect them. The howling dog, the smell of gasoline, the thorn acacia, the terebinth trees, the cane grass, the spiders serve as a sort of continuity. Um, But there's also a philosophical notion of minor details that you briefly reference in the book that comes from history and art history and painting. So when I think of the remapping and the renaming as sort of a a painting over of one reality with another, it feels like Carlo Ginsberg's notion that history can be reconstructed by using things that are seemingly trivial and that a painting's authenticity is not going to be established through major details, so not through Mona Lisa's smile, but through things that we don't notice in the painting. Those are going to tell us whether the painting is is true, um, is authentic to the person who painted it. But I was wondering if you could just speak more about the presence of, of this philosophical analysis um, by Ginsburg in relationship to minor detail. Yes, actually, he's, he, he has been very important to my uh, thinking in the last 20 years, I would say, and uh, also to approaching uh, minor detail. Uh, going back to what is not written and what is not accessible linguistically. I mean, as I said earlier, you grow in a place where language is guarded. It is very guarded. What you can hear and what you cannot hear, what is being said and what will never be said, what something would be said and never explained. It's almost like a a mystery. You, You walk through something that as if you look around, things seem normal, but the only level where they are not, they are a bit, hmm, they make you kind of start doubting there's something wrong is language. Again, it's language. It's what, it's the, the, the names that are not said, the, the place that we're gonna go and pick up some white plants with my family as an outing, and we call it Shajara, but in the signs, it's called Ilania which is the Hebrew uh, name for this area after building a settlement there in the, in the um, 30s. So it's like, okay, there's, a, there's something that is present and revealing itself and being identified and being celebrated, not only in the public space, not only road signs, but in archives, in museums, in school books, in everything that is being officially laid there. So you think, but what about all this kind of little words I'm getting here and there? Where's their place? There's no mention of them. There's no one single written mention of them. But it's like you go and it's like, yeah, actually your parents don't know how to pronounce the Hebrew name because they don't know Hebrew really well. And my mom doesn't know Hebrew. My father, he knows kind of a broken Hebrew. And it's like the most narrow, it's not. So for me, that question was, the, so where is it? If there is only uh, kind of narratives can be constructed through these clear 
cues, linguistic cues that are present everywhere. Is this is the only possible way to excavate a narrative? And then I, I, I came across the work of micro, uh, micro history and uh, Carlo Gain's work, where you can actually find it now. It could be in the worms and the flower and the register books of, uh, of somebody, a merchant, or in the church uh, files, whatever. And it's exactly in the plants, in the, in, the, in the little talk we have. So it is almost this micro history that you live, but it's not officially revealed or being accepted or being shared openly. It's almost like a secret life, but it's not secret, but it's not, nobody recognizes it except of, of you. So that's when I, when I got to know the work of uh, Carlo Ginsburg, I was fascinated. So it's exactly, this is, this is not about, because a lot of, you know, people approach the work of, uh, of Carlo Ginsburg as, as a sort of a forensic, a method towards forensics. But for me, it was not. It was the method for those who are um, kind of deleted or not. They don't have the tools which the powerful has to establish a narrative or a history, let's say. And I think later, I, I, I unfortunately discovered the works of Saidiya Hartman quite late after I finished the novel. But when I read also um, how she was speaking about history, how this history that deletes the narratives of the, the kidnapped African, uh, Africans from the African continent and who drowned and they will never trace, have any trace of, of them, only kind of in a marginal way through the speech of the powerful. So you cannot trust history and, and you cannot trust the tools of history or the method of history. And therefore, maybe microhistory is the only a point of kind of reconciliation because it is these details that the powerful doesn't notice and doesn't pay attention to. It was there was actually something so funny happened uh, in May during the the last wave of attacks on uh, on uh, Palestinian cities and on, especially on Gaza. I think Facebook kind of monitored uh, activities of uh, certain people and the content and they banned uh, mention of certain words. So people on Facebook used the Arabic script from the fifth to the sixth century, which is without dots. And this way, <laughs> uh, Facebook could, couldn't recognize the content, but you as an Arabic reader suddenly, you know, by the removal of this kind of tiny element, suddenly language becomes, you see, yeah. And, and it's funny because you start imagining what could be the content. Uh, so for me, this is almost the, 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 let's say this creative moments of thinking uh, of places where are, you're being denied, but through this denial, you create something else. And that's, we could call resistance, but it doesn't stop about resistance. It creates a whole new approach even to language. And now for me, I was like, this was opening to go back. It's like the scripture from the fourth century, fifth century, because uh, they're putting points uh, on, on top of the letters in Arabic is, is, you know, it was introduced in the seventh century. And yeah. uh, so, yeah, there's all these possibilities. And it's, it's amazing. You know, I actually met also Carlo Ginsburg. He had a talk in Berlin while I was uh, um, almost like finished writing the novel, but I was struggling with the title. And I, you know, I was telling him, thanking him for his influence. And 
And then, uh, oh, he asked me, so what are you calling the novel? <laughs> and I was so ashamed. <laughs> I told him minor detail and he started laughing and I started laughing. <laughs> we were just That's laughing. So and then he said, actually call it minor details. I said, no, I call it just minor details. So that's the... <laughs> nice. I'm glad you bring up Sadia Hartman. There's some really great um, criticism that compares your, your book with her book, Lose Your Mother. But I, I was also wanting to talk about archives and, and confronting archives, which you, you both are doing and our amateur detective protagonist is doing, but it seems like this impossible task to unearth minor details and reconstruct this life of this raped and murdered nameless girl, because the only means, well, first of all, we've, as we've discussed the, the ability to even move around is, um, is deeply compromised, but the only means to retrieve information or this only seeming means to retrieve information are um, what is held by the Israeli archives or the Israeli museums, um, which are difficult to access. And in one talk you mentioned you were arrested in a museum for simply being Palestinian with a laptop. Um, But the museums don't include minor details or if they include minor details they're not included in a way that are legible to to understand what you're um what you're seeing and what our protagonist is looking at when she goes to the museum of the israeli defense forces um isn't legible to her but it all made me think of i think my favorite lecture of yours which was called cracking the surface decanonization as method where you talk about the Great Book Robbery, which is also the name of a film about this that is worth seeing, when the National Library of Israel confiscated 80,000 books from private Palestinian collections, um, 20,000 of which were deemed unfit for circulation because they could do potential harm to the Israeli project and were sold as paper waste. But in this talk, you're talking about your desire to go and steal one book back of of Sakakini, a poet who had an incredible private library that was a de facto resource for the neighborhood, and which he was he was dispossessed of when he was dispossessed of his home. Um, it was actually not only for the neighborhood; it's for the whole region. For He's the whole a, region. a very very important thinker. He's yeah. not only a poet. He wrote secretly like these love poems to his wife, but his major work is in education and philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. But you talk about also pausing around whether to steal this book, whether to, to reclaim this book from the Israeli museum, because there's this project of digitization by the museum. And and usually in archival perspectives, this is considered an act of generosity to digitize things, to make them more accessible. But you you wonder whether this digitization is an amplification of the theft. But nevertheless, it makes you pause. We don't know whether you've stolen the book, but we do know that you're unsure whether to steal it, because if you do before it's digitized, then Palestinians won't have access to it. But I, I guess I wondered about this in light of the second section of minor details, um, whether 
we could view the sort of this, um, this, the impossibility of retrieval in your story around Sakakini's books and, um, and this impossible journey of engagement with the archives for our protagonist. Um, and maybe you could speak to how accessible or inaccessible your, your actual books are in Israel, Palestine in, in light of that. I mean, these examples, it's just almost the first step when you think to go and research um, or to go to, or to consider even researching how just this simple wish on going to an archive, it turns you immediately into a criminal. You know, you're a potential thief, you're a, you're a, a, a kind of, committing a fraud, you're a liar. It's always, it's like almost immediate implications. And it's, it's, it's very interesting how this uh, kind of uh, unethical trap that is being put around you. So you only could be still, you only could not research, you only could be ignorant because the minute you would like to experience, check more, explore more, it's it's really closing on you and you are treated as a criminal. And it's very interesting. It's not it's not like the conditions, the normal conditions. This is the conditions of occupation and colonization. This is what it wants. It's, a, you know, this going back to this mice of learned helplessness. It's not only you learn to be helpless, you, you learn how to be satisfied of being a good citizen, you know, this idea of a good citizen who's an ignorance, ignorant citizen that also justifies controlling you because you're ignorant and you are primitive and so on and so on. And otherwise you're a criminal and a liar. And, you know, all these kind of definitions we have to those who always want to steal from us. You know, it's, it's very interesting, actually. There's a lot of the... Um, you know, there's a small talk in this novel, actually, this kind of small language always comes up, uh, uh, for instance, about uh, the smell. One of the slurs that uh, often, you know, casually an Israeli, an angry Israeli would tell a Palestinian, like, you know, you're a stinking Arab, you smell bad. And <laughs> sometimes, okay, if you don't have water and, and your water is being taken from you and you have the water, a current of water coming once a week, I think you would be saving a lot on water and you might kind of sacrifice taking a shower every day and you might not have a swimming pool to, to sunbathe in one, one settlement or you're British kind of isn't down the slope, not on top and sucking all the, the, the water. So you see all of these issues that they, they come up with that, uh, that builds, it's almost you are constructed as inhuman. This is your condition. And uh, you're a liar. And when one, one wants to offer you the hand, you want the whole arm. This is like a famous kind of reaction, especially when it comes to political negotiation. And you think like, you know, no, it's not like I want the arm or this. I mean, come on, we're talking about occupation. You are confiscating these lands. You are confiscating these books. And this is exactly goes with the, the works of Sakakini. I was so much influenced by Sekekine. I'm, I'm since I am a, a child, you know, because I thought he, he had this idea of um, 
you know, almost kind of a, an open school reform school. I hated school since I went to school. And I don't know why I continued to do my PhD when I every day, literally, well, <laughs> me studying, I hated that. So I was always hoping, you know, I knew that Palestinian resistant fighters wanted to liberate Palestine. But for me, I wanted them to destroy my school, to destroy it. That's it, you know, that, that they, <laughs> somebody should bomb my school and we're yeah. over with it. And then I was reading Sekekine that I was around uh, maybe 11 and 12. And he was talking about uh, a way of how school can be. And, and this kind of almost giving dignity to pupils and, and uh, there's not this again this structure of teachers who know and, ch and children who don't know but it's something a participatory and he established the school in the 30s and 32 in Jerusalem it was an experimental school and I was fascinated like wow so I don't have to bomb my school I can do something else with it <laughs> and I was so happy with him and I started reading him and I tried to talk to the principal of the school and he told me, okay, we will not change the school structure, but I allow you to discuss your ideas with the other pupils. And the pupils, you know, thought it's a crazy idea because they didn't believe actually that we can do that. And then Sekakini doesn't mean anything for the Israeli society as such. His books were looted from his house. They are sitting there in the, in the uh, National, Israel, uh, National Library of Israel. And I, I kind of, I, I'm able to access them, but I cannot, you know, they are like, I, if I want to have it, I, because I wanted, it's like, I know this is a theft and a theft, like I should take that and it's, it's mine, you know, like this kind of almost childish, angry impulse that it, it, it gets in you. But also you know that you are turning into the criminal that you're being designed to be. You have the machine of being turned into criminal that you are. You have no ethical base for acting almost on a daily basis. So it's, it's, it's fascinating what it turns. And for me, that's, it's almost an exam of, of, uh, of the limits of a human being and what could be considered ethical and uh, survival and so on. And uh, I, I think a lot about that, actually. Mm. And I would say uh, the words of others, they helped me a lot. I know that Primo Levi was very important for me because, I mean, he, he, the pain he experienced is not something that is limited to him in a way that I think he's the most generous to be able with your own pain, even if you're coming from a different experience, to feel something connected. And it's fascinating. And I think this is the generosity. And it's so painful for me to, to realize that he committed suicide. Because this, is, this means he doesn't trust humanity. When I think with his writing, he makes me trust humanity or regain my humanity. So I think there's a lot of contradictions that one work with in this kind of what type of knowledges you would also obtain. I wanted Sekekini's books because I wanted to see how this person in the thirties, when we are being presented uh, like the primitive Arabs, this person was 
you know it's not it's it's he was creating something that led him to think of a different schooling system and he created that school and actually this is my my secret wish if uh, one day language leaves me alone i would love to to go to this project and and create this uh, this school but i think i i love that idea yeah it, this school functioned until 48 after until the war mm. And uh, so he's a precious mind, a precious mind that his books suddenly, they are not a collection. They are not this collection that leads you to this kind of knowledge or behavior. They are scattered on shelves mixed with something. So you don't know, uh, of course, one can derive other knowledges different ways, but yeah. Well, near the beginning, we, we were talking a little bit about complacent language in relationship to pain. And I wanted to return to pain and, and trauma in relationship to language, but also to um, life outside of language. When you were talking about, uh, when you were writing about Edward Said's father after the Nakba, um, how he resorted to um, constantly playing cards, you say Said's Said identifies his father's card playing as a dispiriting blankness, an act signifying minimal emotional investment, a way to sublimate anxieties, an escape from a confrontation with reality, all requiring the least words silence. And I was thinking about this in relation to something else you've said, that the book is less about the past's relationship to the present than the past tense in relationship to the present tense, that the past is the realm of the articulate because we have the benefit of retrospection and reflection. and The present tense is by nature stumbling, stumbling forward. Um, when our, our Palestinian protagonist goes to an Israeli settlement to visit a museum archive, you describe the museum guardian in this way. In, translated in English, obviously. He begins speaking in a voice so calm and clear, so untouched by stuttering, stammering, or rambling, that it feels as if he is smoothly unraveling a delicate thread, one which cannot be easily cut. And I think if you're talking Stockholm, where you are asked why the first part is the officer's story and not the girl's story. And you said that we can't have access to her language, that pain is not something that can be communicated, that we even have trouble recalling pain after it passes. So in a sense, that she's silent in the story because of this. But thinking about the too smooth, delicate thread that can't be easily cut, and then also perhaps of weakness as a source of resistance, I wonder if we could talk about the wound of the Israeli officer in part one. Because he's obsessed with cleanness, cleanliness, and ritual, which includes this obsessive desire to rid his hut of insects. But he's bitten by one. We don't know what it is, but the wound won't heal. And much of our time spent with him, he's thinking about or obsessively cleaning his wound. And in your previous books, your characters, they revel in odors and secretions and here the officer can't stop describing 
his revulsion revulsion for the odor on the girl's clothes, manure, urine, genital secretions, and of her sticky saliva and mucus and tears that accumulate on his hand when it's over her mouth. But his wound feels like the one place where the smooth articulation of his routine is like is disrupted. He has no control over this silent, persistent thing. And it feels to me like it's the one place where he becomes, against his wishes, vulnerable to the land, that the land has wounded him. So much so that he comes into the room at one point and is just completely repulsed by the smell of the girl, but then realizes that the smell is of him, of his own wound. I I guess I wanted to hear you speak more about the beingness outside of language with the wound, the smells, the saliva, the secretions in relate. I I don't know if it's in relationship to silence or weakness, um, but it does feel like the one way in which um, this linear narrative dictatorship has been um, foiled. Yeah, I mean, silence is is probably a being, and it 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 should, uh, or maybe it wants this to be uh, its manifestation. Uh, I know w- w- living with silence is. Uh, it's not an, uh, you know, it's not the, the absence of words. It Maybe it's an element, but going back to this, it's not about an absence. It's not, not something that is missing, but it's something else that reveals itself and lives, you know. Mm. Uh, and I think this is, this is the beauty maybe sometimes of language, that it allows that. It doesn't feel threatened by the silence or by the other. It's not, the, and there's where also that it's not this, uh, almost oppositions, either this or that, you know, it doesn't function. It functions actually in the, the, probably the multiplicity of, there is the, there are the words and there's the silence. And as there is in language, so many words in the silence, there are so many silences. And what are these silences and what are their, what their manifestation or being? And, uh, and it's interesting because, you know, um, Silence cannot silence smell somehow, you know. Yeah. Uh, so it's something that doesn't go in negation, but with. It's almost the life. If silence lives, if we don't think about it as only the negation of, or the absence or the deletion of words, it is probably that. Mm. But also it's what can live within all of this silence what can still have the force, have this, uh, and force, and I'm, I'm talking about force and not power, because this is the force of, of, of the life somehow. Yeah. Uh, well, y- you were part of organizing a, a conference that was organized around a grammatical structure that's unique to Arabic. I don't know if I'm going to say it correctly. Al- Al-Muthana? Al-Muthana, yeah. Al-Muthana? Al-Muthana, yes. Um, 
Amuthana that has to do with the relationship between two people. I think of it a little bit when you're talking about the not a negation but with. And you there was quoted in the in the conference materials the the Palestinian mathematician Munir Fasha who said that Amuthana does not perceive the other as non-I or as a person that is a copy of I. Each person remains who they are, but a relation develops that becomes so important that neither person can live any longer as if the relationship is not there. And the text for your conference continues, Almuthana relations extend beyond the structuralist logic of the binary oppositional relations in language systems. Its simplest order is of an I-us as opposed to a quote-unquote other, which Said repeatedly problematized and criticized. You've said in interviews that in your opposition to Israel, you don't see yourself as against a Jewish state, but against a state. And also that while you don't want a state of Israel, you also don't want a Palestinian state. It, it made me wonder if if this were related to this Al-Muthana sentiment. Because um, I'm thinking of Said, who often put forth... Or, or put forth a uh, you know a one state solution that was not based on identity or on language or ethnicity if if that was somehow connected to this i us certainly I mean the, the emergence of uh, of nationalism of uh, which Zionism is an outcome uh, and it's you know it's a, a movement that appeared in in Europe and uh, you know, Zionism as a later outcome of that because it already started in Europe because it fitted the time and the divisions of, of kind of trying to make sense of the self. I'm not opposing the state just because of the idea of the state, but one sees the consequences of the state, you know, one and the consequences of nationalism where the nation state was brought about are disastrous. So far, we have not witnessed a state that is functioning in a, in a way that we uh, we would like to replicate proudly. We are maybe doing it as, as a result of vengeance or anger or, ah, you are like that, so I want to be like that. But it's not out of this uh, free well of like thinking, ah, this is the way to be together as human beings. It is a system that is based on exclusion and forcing um, certain definitions and perceptions of the self in relations to the others, and which is quite uh, um, violent. I mean, essentially, it's violent, even when it comes in this um, almost humanitarian, um, uh, patronizing form, like, yeah, I'm, I'm welcoming refugees. Like, who are you to welcome anybody? Like. Because you live in a structure of a state, so you put yourself in a position, I am welcoming refugees. Like, pardon, this place could have also different structures. And then you lose this possibility to say that you are welcoming. Nobody is welcoming anybody. You welcome, it's like when, or whatever. In, in, a, in a daily life, this is, it's not the definition of I am the, the native and you are the... Uh, the, the intruder. And I would say, actually, in Palestine, 
when the um, uh, Jewish immigration with uh, uh, Zionist settlement started, people were not reacting in a hostile way. The problem starts when it turns into a project of colonization rather than living. And I think this happens in different contexts of colonization. People, you know, in, in, in many places, they didn't uh, oppose people arrival. The minute it becomes problematic, when it becomes about power, about control, about resources, about who's going to control. And I think the state is always a structure that wants to control to enable the functioning, I don't know, of, of, uh, of uh, the economy, probably if we are following Marx, it's the economic structure that needs a state to, to carry, to carry this burden of running, uh, running life so it continues. But it's not the, the way I would, I would like to live. And now I'm saying this because, you know, in, in the case of, of, of uh, the Palestinians, I mean, we witness the, the state of Israel as a state and what it does to you. Is this what I would like to replicate? I mean, is there actually a different way of, of a state to exist? And there's, there's um, an example that I, I actually discussed with my students in Birzeit. Uh, you know, there's the watchtowers. There are checkpoints. And they have Israeli uh, soldiers inside. So they are controlling and seeing. But we always ask, if we take the Israeli soldiers and we put Palestinian um, radical leftists, will the power shift its function? No, it will remain. And those who are inside will remain only being able to watch the others and to have these power relations. And I think. I don't want to go into the structure and to fill it with different people because we see now with the Palestinian Authority that tries to imitate a sort of a structure, a state structure. I don't think they are bad people, but what they are doing is terrible because this is the structure. It, this is it, even if I go there, even if I because I have like some of my friends, they are writers uh, that they became the the ministers of uh, of culture. There, you know. But they suddenly change, not because they're bad, they're really wonderful people, but suddenly the position shifts you. So I think it's a corrupt, or not a, it's a dysfunctional, or if it's functional, it just brings about power relations and enforcing things on others. And I don't think this is the way to live. So I don't want states as such. Imagine the saying in a radio program, which is called the United States of America. <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe to finish, you, you've spent, you spent 12 years sitting in the silence while the words of minor detail emerge. But I'm curious, if you are writing since then, how is, how is what is emerging now an extension of the questions of this book or, or a departure from this book? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, with minor detail, there was this really good question of language, like language, the, the, how, how, would, how this kind of the language of the powerful, the language of the, the powerless, the, the, the stammerer who makes fun of those who speak eloquently. Yes. See, I cannot even. <laughs> 
said. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and uh, in England, I cannot say, who's, oh, okay, those who speak clearly and perfectly. But, and so that was the, the question and it was, and, it, and, and then it's transformed. I mean, I started to, to work on a novel um, in 2018. I, I finished minor detail in 2016 and, and I, I wanted to work on something. And this is a problem. Whenever I want to work on something and writing, it doesn't happen as if I should not have a will, you know, like language can't say no, no, you will not do that. <laughs> and already, you know, I have like, I said, yes, I, I actually dreamed it. It's a structure. It's, I'm going to write this now. And no, it doesn't work. Mm. So I, I tried for two years to think about this, to convince myself that I am, I am ready I have an idea and writing in my case doesn't come with an idea. It comes with a sense. And then I, I, I left that. I said, okay, I go back to the sense, what a sense of my kind of place to, to come to, to literature, to writing. And um, yeah, it's completely different. Or I hope so. I really look forward to it. This was, you know, this is one of the highlight reads for me in years, actually, minor detail. Thank you for your work and for today. Thank you. Uh, you know, I'm really humbled with your words. And yeah, thank you. We we're talking today to Adania Shibley about her most recent book, Minor Detail from New Directions and Fitzgeraldo Editions, and text publishing in Australia and New Zealand. Been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer powered, non commercial, listener sponsored, full strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. I'd like to thank the poets Fadi Judah and George Abraham for being part of this episode today and making this episode better because of it. Fadi Judah's latest poetry collection is Tethered to Stars, out from Milkweed, and George Abraham's latest poetry collection is Birthright from Button Poetry. I hope you support their work. Speaking of support, if you enjoy what you've heard, consider becoming a listener supporter of Between the Covers. Every supporter gets a resource-rich email with each episode, which for this episode would point you to Adania's own lectures and conversations referenced today, as well as writers or books or films mentioned. And every supporter joins a community that is actively shaping who comes on the show in the future. There are also many other possible benefits from rare collectibles from past guests to access to the bonus audio, to becoming an early reader for Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public. You can find out more about becoming a listener supporter of Between the Covers at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Becky Kramer in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. 
And I'd also like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. Thank you.